again, brothers and sisters, welcome to our September 5th, 2021 Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. Thank you for joining us today, whether you're online or in the room. We're thankful to have you. Um, today we're continuing our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you could turn with me to the second chapter, we're going to be reading the rest of the second chapter. Last week we looked at the first five verses. And just as a quick recap, last week we looked at the nature of preaching, right? So we've looked at the substance and content of preaching. And then last week we looked at, of course, the delivery. And Paul didn't want to mesmerize his crowd with eloquent speech, um, but he wanted to um, really teach uh, a humble attitude. And so the humility of the preacher was also taught to us. So we looked at some elements of the importance of um, how we deliver the message uh, of the gospel and what kind of demeanor and attitude or heart we do with it as well. We call it posture, right? So this week, uh, we're, le- we're going to be learning from the rest of the book, or the rest of the chapter, um, the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. So turn with me to verse 6 to 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll read from my Bible and follow in yours. This is what the Word of God reads. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words." But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is praised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. This is the word of God. Um, We're going to be... Firstly, praying for our unreached people group of the day. They come from Suriname. There are 30,000 of these people. They are called the Saramakun. Um, they live in various parts, uh, mainly if you're familiar with Suriname, um, in the sort of like central area of Suriname, but only 30,000 of them. Um, this group is 0.8% evangelical Christian, and they are deemed unreached. Um, they are very... I wouldn't say as far as oppressed, uh, but they definitely are a minority group uh, in their country and in their nation. So we want to pray for them, and we want to pray for some of the obstacles uh, that exist in this community. Uh, their main religion are sort of the ethnic religions, right? the tri- tribal religions um, that exist in um, what is essentially like a, it's a South American uh, country. So we want to pray for them, and we'll pray for their salvation. I don't know if you've been following news, um, but... What is going on in New York? That's kind of crazy. <laughs> like those floods are insane. Um, so we just want to pray for New York City. When's the last time we prayed for New York City? I have no idea. But uh, let's pray for our New Yorkers. Uh, I reached out to some of my friends who are in New York who are like kind of like awestruck. They're just baffled by what is happening. 
Um, if you're not familiar, there's literally like flooding that is just completely invaded the city. People are losing businesses, homes, etc. A lot of a lot of destruction in the city. So, yeah, let's just pray for uh, New Yorkers and the city to recover from uh, what is unfortunately a natural disaster. Essentially, let's pray together, and uh, we'll begin today. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the text today in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. We pray for this text through your spirit to speak to us in powerful ways. Father, we also pray for the Saramankun of um, Suriname and we pray for their salvation. And we pray, Lord Father, that they would know the glory of Christ and that they would know the glory of the Lord and praise him and worship him. Um, and that the community would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord through means you have ordained. Father, we pray for Christians and churches to be um, to exist and be established in that nation. God, we also pray uh, for our brothers and sisters down south um, who are and citizens of New York City who are unfortunately going through uh, flooding, a flooding situation uh, where they're losing homes and businesses and things are getting destroyed. Uh, we pray for hopefully um, a good healthy recovery from this um, and for those who've lost a lot uh, hopefully they'll you know be able to get back on their feet uh, but more important than material um, recovery or physical recovery is spiritual recovery and so we pray for that city we pray for its spirituality and we pray for Lord Father most importantly their faith their faith in you we pray for a recovery of the church and its presence in that city and uh, as it, of course, is a global um, mecca, if you will, a global icon, um, influential city. And we just pray, Lord Father, that Christians in that city would, would stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, The Mind of Christ. It comes straight from the text, the last few words of the chapter we just read or the passage we've just read. Now, after spending, I know some of you are kind of new to our community, but we've spent a lot of time breaking down 1 Corinthians and the opening verses of, of the second chapter, and we've talked a lot about like kind of breaking down human wisdom, right? So after spending the entirety of his letter so far, tearing down the pursuit of Sophia, right, wisdom by the Corinthians, Paul takes their desire for human wisdom and directs them towards what true wisdom really is. Right? If you want wisdom so bad, here's true wisdom, is what Paul's going to teach us today. Now, to the Christian, true wisdom, in Paul's perspective, is not found in something that can be obtained here on our sort of earthly level, right? But true wisdom can only come from an external source, the source of wisdom itself, the source of all things, if you will. A common argument that is made in defense of the existence of God is the moral argument for God. If you're not familiar, I'll just break it down for you. This simple argument, called the moral argument, observes the reality of a moral standard by which human beings dictate right or wrong. And it assumes that there is a perfect standard that can only come from an external source. Why? Since no mortal human being in and of themselves, who have ever existed and do exist today, are perfect examples of perfect morality, right? Yet, the concept of such a perfect standard still exists in our mind and in our hearts, since we naturally deem things right or wrong, based on some, for the Christian, a very, you know, tangible source, being the Bible and God. For the non-Christian or for other religious folks, it could be some other standard that they've kind of concocted on their own, right? Or they haven't really thought about it, but it exists, right? 
Um, and so the argument supposes that this standard must be non-human in origin. But who or what that standard is, is kind of up for you to decide. Right? So the moral argument is basically saying, do you see right or wrong in this world? Do you think cheating is wrong? Do you think lying is wrong? Killing is wrong? By what standard? Right? If you don't have a perfect moral standard, by what standard can you deem something right or something wrong? Right? And so from a governmental perspective or a judicial perspective, our government creates policy, which dictates this is the right thing. And then anything that deviates from that right thing is wrong. And then of course there's legal interpretation of that, right? But anyways, um, human beings do this, right? So we do this, but you can also look at something like a concept, if that doesn't make sense to you, like a concept like beauty, right? And ask yourself, by what standard do we deem something Attractive or unattractive, when you look at a painting or listen to music, right? Lovely or unlovely, when you smell a flower or look at a flower, what makes you deem this attractive, right? Without getting into a debate on the nature and origin of human morality, I'd like to focus on the point of the argument that states that perfection comes and exists externally from the human being, right? Why? Because there is no perfect human being where they can say, I am the ultimate beautiful. I am the ultimate attractive. I am the, the ultimate standard of morality. So everyone must be compared to me to be deemed, you know, relatively, right? Whether you're good or, or bad or right or wrong or all these things, right? There is no, no, there is no such human, of course, outside of Jesus, but putting that aside. And that is sort of where we get Paul's argument on wisdom here, okay? So much like this line of thinking, Paul views perfect, true wisdom to be of divine origin. In fact, his argument is it must be of divine origin, right? And that which is conceived in a human mind is always and must be inferior to that outside origin all the time, every single time. God is known through God alone, is a famous quote by philosopher Karl Barth. With that said, let's look at today's text and Paul's argument for such things. Now, what, what this argument is going to reveal for us, practically, um, as a modern New, Tes New Testament Christian, is uh, sort of like an understanding, not sort of, literally an understanding and a breakdown of how we have been revealed to the truth of Christ in this gospel, and the mystery of the cross, and then how that continues to work in our life today and what kind of effect that has. So we're going to be looking at those three things. So three points. Number one, the wisdom of God. Point number two, the work of the Spirit. And point number three, the mind of Christ. So we're going to be looking at these three things, okay? Uh, I'm going to break it down like this. The wisdom of God is going to be verses 6 to 9. And then Paul's going to talk about the work of the Spirit from verses 10 to 13. And then finally, verses 14 to 16, we'll look at the mind of Christ. Wisdom of God. Verse 6. Open your Bible. Follow with me. In this verse, it indicates a higher, more genuine, and true wisdom of great power. Right? What does he write? Uh, he writes, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So he's, he's saying, you want wisdom? Let me tell you about wisdom. True wisdom. It's of greater power and magnitude and degree than you, you, you can even possibly imagine. Paul has spent extensive time challenging, dethroning the wisdom of the Corinthians. And he has dedicated much of his letter, in fact, his entire letter so far, to destroying their perceived hope in their wisdom. But now, he kind of throws us this curveball. He throws out this statement. And their 
that their desire for wisdom is not ill-fated or hopeless or totally incorrect if you understand what true wisdom is. And that is, of course, God's wisdom that they should be seeking. That's the wisdom that they should be seeking. If you're going to seek a wisdom, this is the wisdom you should seek. Because this wisdom of God is unlike any other. It's unlike any wisdom that can be conceived by the human mind. This age will pass. It's temporary. As Paul teaches, of course, in Galatians 6. So to seek wisdom on earth is foolish. It's foolishness to seek things that are of eternal value here on earth. It would be wiser to seek it above where the wisdom of all ages can be found. Right? Universal wisdom, if you will. Paul is not stating in this verse that, not, that only an exclusive group of elite believers and Christians can have access to such higher wisdom. He's not creating hierarchical intellectual boundaries. Okay? He's referring to all believers, every Christian person who God has ordained and predestined to be revealed to the true wisdom of God, you have access to this higher wisdom. And it's not exactly what you think it is. And we'll get to that. Um, And it's essentially, of course, the mystery of the cross. But here's a quote by Thistleton. Thistleton writes, If the cross places all Christians on the same level as an equal need of divine grace for salvation, the gift of wisdom also operates on this basis, that we're all on equal footing. Right? The rulers of this age that Paul refers to could reference either demonic powers, the Greek is ambiguous here, so it could refer to demonic powers, Satan himself, or literal human rulers of that age, right? Of that time. Paul is likely, in context, referring to human rulers because kind of the, the use of rulers instead of ruler of the age, ruler of the age would refer to predominantly like Satan or the demonic forces. Um, but rulers here could either be Uh, behind-the-scene demonic powers or literally human agents of the time. And the fact that he states later that the rulers would not have crucified Jesus if they had true wisdom indicates to us likely he's talking about the present-day rulers. So that would include the Jewish leaders of the time, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priests, right? Or the high priests and the priest crowd who uh, obviously uh, wanted the crucifixion of Jesus and then, of course, the Roman power of the time, etc., etc., etc. So that is that. Verse 7, the key word here is the Greek word mysterion. Of course, that's, I mean, you don't have to be genius here to figure out. Mysterion is probably the English word mystery, right? Um, Schreiner writes that this term designates something previously hidden, which is now revealed. It's been now revealed to us, right? So this term has roots in the book of Daniel, for example, where certain mysteries of visions and dreams, if you're familiar with Daniel's story, remember you saw like giant hand, you know, writing on the wall, interpreting the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and other, and, and, and other kings like Darius, etc. He, re- he was revealing uh, the revelation of these dreams and the interpretation of these dreams. And Daniel was the one who's revealed to these mysteries and was able to interpret them, right? And so we see sort of that kind of nuance, that usage of that term. This act of revelation is performed and accredited all throughout the Bible to God alone. God alone, okay? Because, as Paul indicates for us, the reason these mysteries even exist is because God has created them. He's chosen to hide certain things. Namely, the mystery of the cross. One does not observe the cross and the dying son and come to a humanly logical conclusion. Hmm, this is the son of God. 
Now you might be thinking, what about the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross who looked upon and saw the dying last breath of Christ and was like, oh, truly, this is the Son of God. That is a demonstration. Do you think he logically came to that conclusion at the foot of the cross? Because then what about everyone else? There were other people there observing the same things. Why is it that it was that Roman soldier who saw the cross and saw what it really was? And saw who Jesus really was. Why was it that there were two thieves, equally guilty, equally lived sinful lives, equally deserving of crucifixion. One looks to Jesus and mocks him. The other identifies him and asks for grace. Why is it? Why is it that we could look at the same Jesus on the same cross and come to so many different conclusions? It's not a logical conclusion to conclude that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a mystery divinely ordained to be revealed to us, right? That truth comes only through God's powerful work of revelation in man's mind and heart. And I'll tell you why. He doesn't want you thinking you saved yourself. Not for a moment should you think, I did this. I came to this conclusion. Right? Sometimes I kind of cringe, not like, I know that that's not what the person means all the time, but sometimes I hear like personal testimonies at like conferences and retreats, and it's so centered on how they came to these realizations, right? And I know what they mean. They, they, they totally understand and accredit God to all of those things. But our testimony is one and of the same. Yes, we have different journeys and unique paths and, and different means and mediums by which we came to the gospel and came to the understanding of Christ, Savior, and Lord. But ultimately... We all have the same testimony. The mystery of the cross was revealed to us through the power of the Spirit, by God's will alone. That's our testimony. That's the testimony of the church. That's why you look around in a church building and you see such a wide spectrum of people. If it was only on logical conclusion that one would come to you know, understand Jesus as Savior and Lord, I mean, you're basically saying only the smart people could do it, right? And that would be quite an issue, I think. So we must understand this to be the case. Verse 7 indicates that for us. Shriner writes, God's wisdom has been granted to believers, but the wisdom believers have is not discovered by them, but revealed to them. It's really important. Verse 8, the wisdom that Paul is alluding to here is not a general term, but one that is centered on the mystery of the cross as indicated in the previous verse verse 7 it is this mystery of the cross that is the focus of paul's argument because the mystery of the cross is what evades the mind of the unbeliever and it is this absence of wisdom of the cross that results in in just uh in total like dire consequence right but for the believers this wisdom is gifted and revealed so that they are able to see the cross for what it truly is now, even the harshest critics of the Christian faith do not deny this. They do not deny a historical Jesus of Nazareth and a historical crucifixion and cross upon which a historical Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. As a historian to deny this truth, right, is like that of a biologist in modern day trying to deny or fight uh, the argument of evolution, right? Not saying evolution is true, but just that it's that magnitude of degree in the historical realm. Like, secular historians agree 
on a historical Jesus, a historical cross, a historical Roman crucifixion of that man. That's just agreed upon. To deny that is kind of bogus. It's You'd be completely discredited immediately. What they deny, however, is not the actual event taking place, right? What they deny is the claimed identity of that Jesus and the nature and purpose of that death. And then, of course, they deny the resurrection. But they look at those things, Jesus on a cross, and they see nothing more than a human death. Right? We can look at the same person dying on the same cross and yet come to two completely different conclusions. Because what is hidden to the human eye, to the human ear, to the human mind, is not the fact of the event taking place, but the fact of its purpose. To see the cross correctly is to equally see this, your sinfulness, our sinfulness, our sinful nature, our deserved death and punishment, God's holiness and justice, God's love and mercy, God's wrath against sin, Jesus as a son of God, savior of all, Jesus as the Lamb of God, slain once and for all, an atonement for our sin, a propitiation on our behalf that although we are guilty, we can be deemed righteous by Christ's imputed righteousness on us. Paul's concern, Gordon Fee writes throughout, is to get the Corinthians to understand who they are in terms of the cross and to stop acting like non-spirit people. And finally, verse 9. It's not clear exactly which Old Testament passage Paul is referencing here as he does, you know, what a lot of New Testament authors do in the Gospels and etc. They either paraphrase or join like multiple verses together. And many scholars agree it is is very likely uh, an allusion to Isaiah 64 verse 4. But Isaiah 65, 17 and Jeremiah 3, 16 are also options as well. The point is this. The point is apparent and obvious. Paul is indicating that all things are predestined and preordained by the will and the mind of God and that only his action and work can enact a change in the human eye or ear to be able to see that which has been made hidden by God, so that those who do come to know and love him cannot take any credit for their opening. The context of Isaiah 64, verse 4, furthermore, is that of a prayer. If you've ever read Isaiah 64, it's a prayer. And it's a prayer that asks God to come down to Israel, to your people, make known your presence among us is the prayer of Isaiah 64.4. So here, that context, in that context, we get this paraphrase. Right? Make known to us, only you, that which only you can make known. Right? Second point, work of the Spirit, verses 10 to 13. Let's look at verses 10 to 11 first. To believers, Paul says, we are revealed to this great mystery and wisdom through the Spirit. The Spirit reaches the depths of God and is able to bring forth this great revelation to the believer. To the Christian, our new life is marked by this very revelation, the revelation that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit being in us. It is this great counselor and teacher, as Jesus refers to him, that Christ promised would come to his disciples. And it is this Spirit-filledness that marks the Christian as one who has come to know God truly. So what is Paul saying here? True wisdom, the truly wise, are the spirit-filled. 
The wisdom, Schreiner writes, that no one could conceive or imagine is not the product of human intelligence, but is revealed by the Holy Spirit. For only the Spirit is able to reveal the mind of God. Paul's intent is likely not to make here a Trinitarian statement. I don't think that's what he's trying to do. But this verse reveals again to us that the Spirit is viewed equal to God. God himself as who else could reach the depths of God and reveal them to us. Verse 13, the translation of this verse into the English is quite difficult. It's one of the most difficult in the New Testament. And every translation of the English Bible has, has made a choice in the translation of this verse. Although none are too far from the original meaning, it can have a very, it can have a sorry, different expressed connotation to English readers. This is where study of the original language, Greek in this case, helps us. The word in the last phrase for spiritual things in the NASB that I read from is the Greek word pneumatikos. And it can also be translated, perhaps in your Bible, as spiritual people. And the word synchronontes can be translated as combining or explaining or comparing. And in context, Paul is conveying this idea. The idea of true wisdom being revealed to the human mind so that it can then be conveyed through articulation in that human to other humans. The emphasis on the spirit is obvious as Paul uses three words with the Greek word for spirit in them. He uses the word in this one, sen- in this one verse, pneumatos, pneumatikos, pneumatica. There is an emphasis on the work and power and revelation of the spirit. Paul's intent is to teach that Christians are blessed with the spirit of God his work in us to reveal mysteries and then to empower us to convey our beliefs to others. Now, if you don't believe me, a lot of people in the more charismatic traditions of our faith will look to the power and work of the Spirit as as being sort of the external results of those things. So things like, you know, powers that we see in Scripture. For example, they'll go to like 1 Corinthians 12. We'll get there. Uh, They'll go to Romans 12. uh, They'll go to other chapters of of Scripture where they'll look at the, the powers of the Spirit. And they'll say the powers are like, you know, speaking in tongues or healing people or casting out demons and, you know, prophesying and all of these things, right? But if you look at in context, even those crazy to us, crazy, you know, gifts that people had back then, what, was, what were the purpose of those things? Go to Acts 1.8. It's very simple. The power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, them meaning the disciples. And what happened? They became witnesses witnesses of who jesus and his cross the gospel to who first to jerusalem then judea samaria and to the ends of the earth so what was the purpose of all that what is the purpose of being able to have these abilities right it's not to have the ability it's not even for you to have assurance that oh, because I have this gift, it must mean that I am this, right? We see satanic powers being able to conjure these types of abilities. It means nothing unless it is for the purpose of the witness of Christ. So nowadays, we don't really want the gift of tongues because brothers and sisters, let me be real with you. If we go out onto the streets and start speaking in tongues to people, they're going to think you're a freak. You know what you need, really? And I did campus ministry for 10 years of my life. 
to share the gospel to another student in your classroom, to be able to share the gospel to a friend that you have on campus, or even the most daring, a stranger, or a professor, if you will. You know what spiritual power you really need? I'm just going to call it what it is. You need to grow some balls, right? The spiritual power you really need is not gift of tongues or healing or all these things. You need, you see guts. You need boldness. It's called courage. It's called conviction. That would be perhaps the greatest spiritual gift, if you will that you would need for the purpose of the witness of Christ today. Because what, what is truly an obstacle in the 21st century in the Western world for the gospelization of our community? I think we're all just a bunch of wussies to talk about our faith, to even say you're a Christian at work, at school, at home, wherever it may be. It's not to mean, like, it, it doesn't mean to shove Christianity down people's throats. It's just to be able to say, I am a Christian. This is what I believe. These are the things I hold to. Right? The gifts of the Spirit were to empower that first century church for the purpose of the witness of Christ. And I don't think it's any different today. I really don't. Final point, mind of Christ. So what results? And this is, this is important, critical for us to understand. Verses 14 to 16. Look at verse 14. Here is Paul's contrast between the spirit-filled Christian and the natural man. Right? Natural man being the non-spirit-filled human. One hears and receives the things of the Spirit as true. The other hears the same things and receives them as nonsense. We look at the cross, one sees Savior, one sees just a dead guy. Right? Christian faith is thus, naturally foolish to the natural man. <laughs> right? We've already talked about this in, first current, in the first chapter. Right? The things of the cross are foolishness to the, to the people of the world. Natural people will not see the cross. They will see natural foolishness. This is ridiculous. Right? And we wonder why people think Christians are crazy. The Bible tells us that it will be deemed such by natural people. It is not so much that the message cannot be heard or even comprehended. It is that it is rejected on the basis of its foolishness. To be a Christian then is to be revealed to the mystery of something that is by all accounts foolish. Thus something that we naturally would not be inclined to believe. In John chapter 3, there's a very interesting conversation that ensues between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he seeks questioning. He's like, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And, and well, he doesn't even ask that. He just says, teacher, teacher, you know, I respect you. You're a great teacher, right? And Jesus is like, truly, truly, I say to you. And then he gives on this spiel about being born again. One must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, right? And Nicodemus is confused. What do you mean by that? Like, this doesn't make any sense. How do I enter my mother's womb again? And Jesus is like, you crazy guy, you don't enter your mother's womb again. That's impossible. You would literally kill her, right? <laughs> I don't think your mom would want that. So it's not about being physically born. It's what you'd be born by water and by spirit. One day we'll get to that. We'll talk about John 3 one day. But just keep that in mind. He ends in the middle of that conversation. 
he has this very interesting statement. The spirit blows, or the wind blows, where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who is born of spirit. And here's an interesting thing. The word in Greek for wind and the word in Greek for spirit is pneuma. It's the same word. Jesus is using a play on words here. He's saying the wind blows or the spirit blows. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone of the spirit. In the ears of a non-believer or, or a, a natural person or in, the case, in this case Nicodemus, he's thinking, what is this guy talking about? Right? The things of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the revelation of the Spirit, and the things of Spirit-filled people are nonsense to non-Spirit-filled people. You need to get this idea out of your head, Christian, that your faith is going to make sense to people. Get that out of your head. As soon as you get that out of your head, you can start a conversation with people. Because if you go into a conversation with a non-believer thinking I can rationalize my faith to this person to make it just be totally logical and this person who is not spirit-filled will totally get it. They will not. I've had so many conversations with atheists or or agnostics, if you will, who come to me and say, so you believe a talking serpent? You believe that two animals of every kind were on the ark? You believe that Jonah survived in the belly of a fish? Biologically, that's impossible. He has stomach acids and plus, what kind of fish could possibly swallow him and then then spit him out again? You believe all of these things? Yes, I do. And you see it on their face. You are psycho. Right? It's not going to make sense to people. You need to get that out of your mind. And we also have to get this out of our mind. Nobody naturally seeks after God or the things of the Spirit. Romans 3.11. Paul says it clearly there. Let's get that out of your mind too. So that out of our mind, what is the mind that we have? Verse 15, to the believer, in Paul's perspective, They are able to assess all things in accordance with the revelation and work of the Spirit in them. This does not mean that believers have all knowledge of all things and we've just monopolized all information. It means that the things which are spiritual, knowledge-wise, are accessible now to the mind and heart of the believer because of the active work of the Spirit in them. But to the non-believer, these things are in accessible. A practical demonstration is this, is the moral life of the believer, which will make no sense to the non-believer, at least at a certain point. Well, we're going to agree on certain things. We're going to agree on no lying, no cheating, no killing, no rape, you know, no murder, like blah, 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 right? But where we're going to start drawing lines is, you know where the lines are. I don't even have to mention, right? There are these, we get into what we, what we would deem as a human being, the gray area, and then we start dividing on moral issues, right? And there's even something more practical. Why, Christian, do you sacrifice yourself for others? Do you even like that person? Why do you give up your time and effort for that? Why do you give up your money for that? Why do you love onto this person so much? You're willing to do that for me? Sacrifice. Why do you love those that hate you? 
I say this all the time, but an atheist came up to me and asked me, I would die for the world if I knew it would save everyone. What makes That doesn't make Jesus special. I would do that too because I'm a good person. I would die for anyone and everyone. And I said, you're a liar because you wouldn't die for someone who hates you. You wouldn't. And you definitely would not endure crucifixion for someone who hates you. <laughs> That's one person. Now multiply that by billions. You wouldn't do it. Why stand for this cause, they might ask. Christian, why do you stand for this? Why is this so important to you? I had a gay friend once who asked me, why do you care so much about marriage? Just, just let us have it. Right? I care because I'm spirit-filled. I'm revealed to things that I cannot deny anymore. And it's important to me. Shriner writes, The ultimate commitment which animates believers is a mystery to unbelievers, since the latter lack the Holy Spirit. Thistleton writes, To be spiritual is not to draw upon an innate higher capacity of the human soul. It is to be moved, activated, and transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. As for Christian maturity, Thistleton writes, that This denotes some suppose It does not, sorry, um, denote some su supposed second or advanced stage that has left the cross behind, but it denotes the growth in Christ-likeness, holiness. Final verse, verse 16. Paul is likely drawing from Isaiah once again here, specifically Isaiah 40, verse 13, but he's paraphrasing the verse, the context of that verse. The context of that passage is that Israel was in exile under Babylon, and they were doubtful of God's plans for them. Basically, plans to save them, right? God reassures Israel in that chapter that his plans and thoughts are incomparable to any man's and that he can be trusted to fulfill and keep his promises. Even in exile, God is to be trusted for his ways are greater than our own. He points the question of Isaiah 40:13 to the Corinthians and reminds them of this ancient teaching. It's obviously a rhetorical question as it is simply asking the believer, who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? <clears throat> and so many times, hidden in the depth of our prayer, hidden in the wording of our prayer, hidden in the intent of our prayers to God, is really what? Why don't you do this for me? You ought, God, to do this for me. Right? The answer is no one. No one has known the mind of the Lord. Especially not us. So I think the reason for this statement is to assure the Corinthians and remind them that the spiritual things of their faith can only be properly assessed by those who have the mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? There's a lot of things there. There's one thing I have always taught you, right? At least I hope you've listened and learned this. The thread of Christ's ministry the sort of, I guess, if you will, the reoccurring theme that is threaded throughout the entire narrative of all the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, is what? Doing the will of the Father. That's why on the night of Gethsemane, when Christ is so terrified of dying on the cross that he is literally sweating blood, 
that his prayer is take this cup, cup being the Old Testament image of death, take this death from me, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Not my will, your will be done. The flesh desires other things, but it is not my will. Even if it means dying on a cross, that your will be done. That is the threat. And that is the mind of Christ. That our prayers are redirected to not what I want, what I ought, to, what I think I ought to receive. But no matter what happens in life, no matter what I receive in life, whatever, whatever I'm served in this lifetime, good, bad, what I desire or not desire, it doesn't matter. That I'm willing to yield myself to the will of God, knowing that it is for the good of all and for the glory of God. So we're not to be consumed like the unbeliever of things that are self-centered and temporal. And those who don't are incapable of assessing the things of the Spirit. They're just incapable of this. And so they cannot see these things in that way. So we aren't to be consumed of what the unbeliever thinks of us and the things we do. And we're to build each other up as the community of Christ, for we are the only ones capable of properly assessing the spiritual things of our faith. Too many times we are prone to hear the opinions of man louder than the opinions of God. And I've experienced this so many times as a pastor, as people have sought, you know, counsel or opinion, biblical you know, biblical thought on some issue or matter of their life. And I'll give them the spiel. This is what I think the Word of God reveals to us in regards to your issue, right? And then they'll turn to their friends or unbelievers, and they'll get completely different advice on the same topic. And the, and the, the basic sort of juxtaposition of this Right? The difference between these two opinions, sort of the categorically, is this. You look out for yourself. Do what God wants. And this seems to be the versus battle in our life. Do what's good for you. You live for you. Don't care about others. You look out for yourself. No one's going to look out after you. Right? Like, it's all about you, 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 you. And there are times where that is a benefit, right? That results from doing the will of God. But as a believer... We ought to seek the will of the Lord and faithfully obey, even if it means total sacrifice. And you're going to think, that's not fair. That's not fair that I have to do that. That's, I don't want to do that. Not, well, how come that brother or sister doesn't have to do that, right? I'm going to be really dead honest with you. I don't want to be a pastor. I want a regular job with regular salary. <laughs> Like, I don't even want to be, like, at this point, I'm not even sticking rich. Like, I just want a normal salary to be able to survive and have a family. I don't want this life. I don't want to be held on some moral pedestal. Oh, he's a pastor, so he has to live like this. Oh, he has to do that. If he does this, that's, that's a weird pastor, right? I want to, like, do whatever I want, wear what I want, you know, buy things that I want, blah, 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 blah. blah. I want that too. It's just normal. But doing the will of the Father. Okay, I'm going to be, it's not fair. I wish all of you are called as pastors so that you all have to live my life. 
<laughs> but you're not. And I can look at it that way from a human being's perspective. Oh, it's not fair that I have to give up. We're all going to end up in heaven anyway. Why don't I just be a follower? Why don't I just be a layman, right? It's not like that. Some are called for this role and others another. And your sacrifice will be different from mine. But none of us, thank God, will have to die on a cross. So you might think every day of your life, why do I have to sacrifice so much? Jesus gave his life on a cross for your sin. So that you can sacrifice less. Think about that. Just think about that. That's what keeps me going. It's not, it's not you guys, to be honest. You're not that loving, okay? <laughs> I don't love you that much. What keeps me going is knowing that Jesus died for my sins. And my sacrifice fails in comparison to his. It doesn't even compare. I leave you with this. Just a quick organization of what we've learned today because it was long and it was lengthy. One, true wisdom comes from God alone and it is this wisdom that is able to see the mystery of the cross, allows us to be able to see the mystery of the cross and receive it in faith. Point number two, this great act of revelation and the power to transform us as a result is the direct work of the Spirit in every believer. Being Spirit-filled is the dividing line between believer and unbeliever. And then finally, Christians, number three, thus have access to the mind of Christ. And in that, we can assess all things through the Spirit and become more and more like Jesus. So, what we see in this passage today is a call to all believers. Be concerned with the things of the Spirit, to grow in Christ-likeness, and to rely on the Spirit's power to do so. Brothers and sisters, that is my hope, my prayer for you today. Let's take some time to reflect and pray on what we've learned, and then we'll go time into a time of reflection song and conclude.